You may have had to read a book in college called Democracy in America by a man named Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, if you were like me and you read that, maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, but there was a particular observation that de Tocqueville made in that book about life in America that has always stuck with me. It's just always been there. I wrote it down then, and I go back to it all the time, uh, reflecting on what he saw here in America uh, in the t- beginning of the 19th century. De Tocqueville said this. He said, there's a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of this land in the midst of such a great abundance. That was his observation of life in the States. A strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants of this land in the midst of such a great abundance. Though de Tocqueville wrote this in the 1830s, I just began thinking about myself and I was thinking about you and I'll just simply ask this, could he be describing you this morning? I mean, could his description, could his portrayal uh, be accurate of you this morning? Is there a strange melancholy that haunts you today? A strange melancholy that haunts your mind, that haunts your soul today in what by all measurable standards must seem to be a life of abundance? Is there a strange melancholy that haunts you this morning? Maybe you didn't read the Tocqueville, maybe observations from the 1830s aren't really your cup of tea, so let me go to the great 21st century thinker, Tom Brady. Um, You're laughing, only a few of you, because you know who he is, Tom Brady. By all measurable standards, this guy's got it all, right? I mean, he has lived and is living every American man's greatest sports fantasy. He's won everything that he could ever put his hand to. He's smart, he's married, he has a family, success beyond his wildest dreams. And a few years ago, he did an interview on 60 Minutes that has stuck in my mind and stuck in my heart and rattled around for almost three and a half years now. And here's what Tom Brady said in that interview. He said, why? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? He said, I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, Tom, this is what it is. You've reached your goal. I've reached my dream, my life. Me? Here's what I think. God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't really be all that it's cracked up to be. When he said that, the man interviewing him asked him a follow-up question. This is what he asked him. He said, well, Tom, what do you think the answer is? Brady responded like this. I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me, a lot of other things that I'm still trying to find. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants of this land in the midst of such great abundance. Did you you hear it in his statement? Are you aware of it in your own heart and in your own mind? De Tocqueville, in that same work, went on to continue commenting about this, and here's what he said. He said that the incomplete joys, the incomplete joys of this world will never actually be able to satisfy the human heart. The incomplete joys, all the things that look like in all measurable respects a life of great abundance might not really be a life of abundance. By all measurable standards, what looks like such a great and abundant life might simply be in existence. There's still something missing. 
The deep joy and the peace that you'd expect in the midst of all those things just isn't there. And if that's the case, then is this type of life in abundance? Is, as the Bible would say, abundant life really even possible? Last few weeks, we've been looking at the life and and ministry of Jesus. And specifically last week, this week, and next week, the reasons why Jesus said himself he came. Why on earth he came and lived the life that we were supposed to live in our place, dying the death we deserve to die in our place for our sins. Why did he do it? And in the gospel according to John, John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that word abundantly means beyond your wildest expectations, beyond your wildest imaginations. Abundant life is possible, but to have abundant life, life beyond your wildest imaginations and expectations, Jesus says in John chapter 10, you're going to have to know a couple of things. You're going to have to know him a particular way, and you're going to have to know yourself a particular way. So this morning, I just want to read this section of John chapter 10 to you, and then try to paint for you in the best way that I can, the picture that Jesus is talking about here. So if you've got your Bible, open up to John chapter 10. We'll read together. I'll try to give you a little bit of the context, and then we'll see what he's saying. John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Here it is. Listen to this. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now look at this, verse 19. There was again a division among them, among the Jews, because of these words. Again, a division arose among those listening to Jesus. Many of them said, he has a demon, and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of 
the blind. Now, just to kind of set it in its context here, because it wasn't said in a vacuum. In John chapter 9, there's a famous story you might be familiar with of Jesus healing a man that was born blind. Here's the thing. Jesus healed this man who had been born blind, and he did it on the Sabbath. And like we've already seen in the life and ministry of Jesus, this was highly offensive to the Pharisees. They just could not handle the way that Jesus related to the law, the way that Jesus related to the Sabbath. And when this man could finally see, he went to the Pharisees, he went to the leaders of the church to tell them, and here's what they said, who healed you? Tell us, who was the man that did this to you? Well, he told them about Jesus. And he said, it's impossible. He's a sinner. He can't heal on the Sabbath. God does not respond to sinners like that. So they ask him again. They ask his parents. His parents say, go ask him. He's old enough. Let him tell you. We're not going to get in trouble with this. And he said, tell us again, who who did this to you? And he said, look, here's what I know. I met this man. I don't know what you say about it, but I, I met this man. I couldn't see. And now I can see. That's all I can tell you. And here's the thing. The Pharisees weren't concerned about him. They didn't care that this man who had never been able to see before had met Jesus and been miraculously healed. In fact, they kick him out of the synagogue. They have no concern for him, for his life, no care for him at all. What they're concerned about is Jesus and the threat that he poses to their rule, to their leadership in the church. And this is how Jesus responds to them. But here's what makes it even worse. Here's what makes it really divisive. In their minds, as the Pharisees and the leaders have gathered around and Jesus is talking, as this man who was blind who can now see is there and he's listening, as the disciples of Jesus are around listening, Jesus isn't talking to anyone in particular, but everyone there remembers something that God had said through the prophet Ezekiel back in the Old Testament. They were all familiar with something. Ezekiel chapter 34, you don't have to turn there. I'll I'll turn there for you. God, through Ezekiel, said something directly to the religious leaders of Israel in that day, what were also called the shepherds of Israel, those who were the pastors, those who were the leaders. This is what God said through Ezekiel. He said, the weak, you haven't strengthened. The sick, you haven't healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. You are the shepherds of my people. You are supposed to lead them and feed them. Instead, God said, you've fed on them. You've prayed on them. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. I myself, God said in verse 15, Ezekiel 34, will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And at the end of that prophecy, listen to what God said. And this is what's going on in their mind. And I, God speaking, I will set up over them one shepherd. And he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And Jesus looks at how they respond to this man, how they respond to him after this miracle. And he said, here's the thing. My people have had enough with thieves and robbers. They've had enough with shepherds who don't feed them and lead them, but rather feed on them. Listen to this. Let me tell you a little bit about the good shepherd. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I came that you might have life. Not just existence. I came to give you life beyond your wildest expectation and imagination. But here's the thing. You're going to have to know me as your shepherd. And this is huge you're going to have to know me not as the shepherd. I want you to hear the distinction here. You're going to have to know me not as the shepherd, not information about me and what it means for me to be the shepherd and of the theological category that that falls in. You're going to have to know me as your shepherd. If you're going to taste this life that I have come to give, if we're going to escape this haunting sense of melancholy that, that just rattles around in our 
hearts in the midst of what looks like such great abundance, if we're going to have real life, life abundantly that Jesus came to give, you're going to have to know him as your shepherd. And so what I want to do with the rest of the time that we've got is I just want to pull out a couple portraits of what it means for Jesus to be your shepherd that he is mentioning here in this story. There's so much here. I mean, I wish we had a couple of weeks to just deal with what Jesus says here, but instead, let's just look at what does it mean for him to be your good shepherd? What does he do? Why does he do it? What difference does that make for you sitting here right now? And here's what I want you to catch, and I want to really overemphasize this to a degree. Most people are acquainted with the notion or the idea of God being a shepherd. No matter what kind of environment you grew up in, you probably played a sport or something. At some point, somebody read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Everybody's comfortable with the idea of God being a shepherd. But you've got to consider what it means for Jesus to be your shepherd daily, day in and day out. Because as you consider this, as you begin to live in response to this, you'll know life, not just existence, but you'll know life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give. So let's just see what we can pull out here in John chapter 10 this morning. Verse 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. If you don't walk away from any, with anything else this morning, I just want you to hear this. As the good shepherd, Jesus knows you to the depth of your soul. Jesus knows you inside and out. He knows you better than you know yourself. And here's the thing. He still loves you. You're going to have to get that. If you're going to understand the life he's talking about, you're going to have to get this. He knows you better than you know yourself. The deepest parts of you, and yet he still loves you. The the relationship that Jesus is talking about here with this word picture is an absolutely fascinating study. I've got to admit how, how, how much I've enjoyed this week studying the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. There is no other relationship in in the farming world between a shepherd or a rancher or a farmer and his animals quite like the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. And it's because of the nature of the people involved, because of what it requires to be a shepherd and what it actually means to be a sheep. But the, the picture is amazing. Let me try to paint kind of the story he's talking about and what it means when he says this. You see, back in the Middle East, in Jesus' day, every town or every village would have had a common piece of property that would have been a sheepfold somewhere near the middle of town or on the edge of the town. And all the shepherds who had herds of sheep would lead their sheep to pasture during the day and at night, they would lead them back to the sheepfold. And all the shepherds would put their sheep in this common sheepfold. And there was a door that closed the sheepfold at night and there was someone usually who was paid to sit there at the door to watch the sheepfold while the shepherds would go and and they would sleep and they would get rest and they would come back in the morning and they would get their sheep and they would lead them back out into the pasture. This was a a common practice and a common thing in the towns and villages of Jesus' day. So what does that have to do with being known? What difference does that make in being known? When a shepherd would lead his sheep, and here's what Jesus is saying that's all in this thing, When a shepherd would lead his sheep to that sheepfold in town, and the day was done, and he was taking them back to put them in at night, as he would get to that door and his sheep were following, he would stoop down on his knee and he'd take his rod. A shepherd had a rod and he had a staff, and 
We'll talk in another week about what those things are about. But he would take this rod and he would stoop down and he would hold it down low enough that the sheep couldn't get under it. They were just kind of stopped right there. And as they were stopped, you know what he would do? He would examine every single one of them. Ears, eyes, nose, mouth, back, belly, feet. He'd look them over every single inch of their body looking for any injury they may have had, anything he should be concerned about, uh, any place he needed to apply an ointment, anything that he needed to know about this sheep. Every single day, he would examine each and every single one of them, covering their entire body. In the morning, when he would go to get his sheep to lead them out to pasture, again, he would kneel down. The rod would go down so the sheep wouldn't pass by. Do you know what he would do? Examine them ears, their eyes, their nose, their mouth, every stitch of their body to make sure that all the sheep dung that had accumulated with all those sheep in there hadn't gotten caught in their feet in a way that would turn into foot rot because they were very prone to that. All those other sheep with parasites and mites and bugs and flies making sure that his sheep were okay. Every night and every single morning examining every single inch of every single one of his sheep. He knew every square inch of them. And here's what's even more amazing about that, and we'll we'll put them all together in a second. Jesus said, the sheep, when he comes in the morning to get them, they hear his voice, and he calls each sheep by name. So when he would take them in at night and stop them and examine them, when he would lead them out in the morning and stop them and examine them, he would call each and every single one of his sheep by their individual name. Shepherds gave every single one of their sheep a unique and individual name. Not like, you know, Bucky or Sparky or Big Ear or Little Ear. Shepherds gave their sheep unique names that had something to do or represented some aspect of their existence or their life. Philip Keller is a guy I read a lot this week who was actually a shepherd in the Middle East who wrote a book about what it means to be a shepherd in the Middle East, kind of relating it to this big biblical metaphor. And here's what he said, talking about this whole naming idea and knowing the sheep, and it'll all make sense in a second. He said there are examples even today of how shepherds name their sheep like this. A sheep might be called the one born in the dry riverbed. Not Robert, but this was the sheep that was born in the dry riverbed. I know him. I know how he came here. I know him. Keller said this, the the shepherd is so familiar with his sheep He's handled them so much, not just looked at them, not just led them, not just pointed at them, handled them, touched them, maneuvered them, handled them so much that he knows their every trait, every habit, and every characteristic. He can predict their behavior under any given set of circumstances. He understands all of their peculiarities. He is never surprised. He is never taken back by their unusual idiosyncrasies. He's at ease with them, comfortable in their company, and he delights in their management. You hear that? See that picture? If Jesus is your shepherd, it means that he knows you completely. Every single inch of you. There is nothing in you that can surprise him. There's nothing that you've tucked down so far And think that you've shoved behind so many different layers that one day is going to surprise him. He knows you better than you know yourself. 
here's the thing. If we're really honest, that type of awareness of us is a bit scary, isn't it? It's a bit scary. It doesn't take a philosopher or a sociologist to tell you what you know in your own heart. On one hand, you desperately want somebody to know you like that, don't you? I mean, don't you want a relationship where people know you for who you are? There's nothing to hide. I mean, complete transparency. I've got nothing hidden. But at the same time, doesn't that scare you to death? I mean, doesn't that kind of transparency with another person absolutely frighten you? Because what happens if they really find out who you are and all these things that you think you've hidden over here and you let them know and you pull it out? What if they don't love you? I mean, what if they don't like you? What if it doesn't quite go the way that you had hoped it would go? And so desperately wanting to be known, but desperately not wanting to be known, we have to figure out what parts of ourselves we have to hide. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he said that in every man, that's every single one of us, all of us in here breathing, in every man there is something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent to himself. But here's the problem. He who cannot reveal himself, okay, he who cannot be transparent with others, he can't reveal himself, he can't love. And he who cannot love has to be the most unhappy man of all, has to be the one trapped in this haunting sense of melancholy in the midst of such great abundance. Just think how many times in your own life you've chased down this desire for people to really know you. Not their preconceived idea of you because you realize that as soon as someone hears something about you, they already form a picture of you, right? They already have this preconceived idea of what, who you are and how you live and, and how you react because of something else someone else said and they've got this idea, but you desperately want them to know you for who you are, don't you? Don't you want them not to look at you by the, the picture that they have of you, but for who you really are? But at the same time, if they really see who you are, because you know the parts that are really there, aren't you so afraid they won't love you? They won't like you? And so like Kierkegaard said, we have to hide ourselves. We can't be that transparent. But if that's the case, then we can't really love and if we can't really love, how unhappy, how melancholy must it be? Jesus said, I, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And to some degree, that's scary, isn't it? He knows everything about you. All those things you think you've got to hide. You can't hide them from him. He knows every square inch of you inside and out. The shameful things, the dark things, the motivations and the intentions that you fooled me with and everyone around you, he knows them all. Why is it not scary? Verse 15, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The good shepherd knows you Inside and out, nothing hidden. But if he really knew that, he wouldn't love me, right? I know you, but I know you as the Father knows me. And how does the Father know Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that for all of eternity, 
The Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in an infinite relationship of absolute soul and being satisfaction with one another. Satisfaction that you and I can only imagine that one day in eternity we'll taste, but for all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been eternally and overwhelmingly satisfied with one another. Jesus says, listen, if I'm your shepherd, if I'm your shepherd, you're my sheep, the Father, he'll know you just as he knows I know everything about you, but how do I know you? I know you the same way he knows me, and I'm his delight. I'm his treasure. He knows you with all of the joy and all of the honor and all the admiration that he has for me. This is how I know you. I know things about you no one else knows. I know things that you've forgotten about yourself. I know every part of you but I know you and I love you and I see you just as the Father sees me. If he is your shepherd, as your shepherd, he knows you better than you know yourself. Here's the amazing thing. He still loves you. He still loves you. And just for a minute, if you can let yourself begin to to feel the freedom that comes from actually knowing that he knows you. Every inch of it. And he loves you anyway. He knows you and he chose to redeem you. He knows you and he knows you just as the Father knows him. If he's your good shepherd, he knows you. And yet he still loves you. And here's something even wilder with the whole thing. Not only does he know his sheep, but here's what he said. The sheep, they know him. And it all has to do with the way he has built this relationship with his sheep. Jesus said, they know my voice. The the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Verse five, he says, a stranger they won't follow. They'll flee from him. They don't know the voice of strangers. Just listen, let's let Shepherd Keller bring us back in here. Listen to this. This whole idea of how sheep know their shepherds, he said, is best exemplified by the traveler encountering sheep that are blocking his way. So imagine you're traveling somewhere overseas. Maybe you're in in the highlands over there in in Ireland or somewhere in the rural area of England, and there's sheep scattered across the street, right? He says that you can try vainly to get them to move, but they won't recognize or respond to your voice. Even if you or a traveler say the same words and phrases as their rightful owner, they won't react the same way. It's a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances and personal accent of the shepherd's call. You can just go ahead and start drawing these connections all you want. I don't need to make them for you. Over a period of time, he says, sheep come to associate the sound of the shepherd's voice with special benefits. When the shepherd calls to them, it's for a specific purpose. He has their best interest in mind. His voice is used to announce his presence, that he's there. And when he does, it slays all of their fears and timidity. Always the master's voice conveys to the sheep a positive assurance that he cares for them and is acting in their best interests. He 
He said, to hear and to know the voice of the shepherd is to be constantly assured of the shepherd's care for them. It's evidence of his affection and his faithfulness to them. He knows you, every inch of you, and he loves you. Do you know his voice? Does his voice set your fears at rest? Does his voice instill courage where there had been timidity? Does his voice assure you that he has your best interests at heart? Does his voice not frighten you and not cause you to be skittish, not cause you to worry, but does it set you at peace because you know who he is, because you know he's got your best interests at heart? You know his constant care for you. That care that's exhibited is your soul satisfied and set at peace at the thought that every single day you have to pass under his rod to lay down in peace and security. That he examines you day by day, moment by moment, knows you inside and out, knows all of your heartaches and all of your needs. Do you know his voice? Does it set you at peace. The good shepherd knows his sheep. The sheep know his voice and what it means. And because of who he is, do you know what they do when they hear it? They follow it. They follow it. Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And then when he's brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Or they know his voice. And two pictures of just how much this shepherd loves his sheep. Just how much Jesus, as your shepherd, loves you as his sheep. One, the good shepherd always leads his sheep. Doesn't mean anything to you if you don't understand how we tend to move herds in the West. In the West, have you ever been to a farm that's full of herds, either cows or, or, or sheep or any other big animal? Do you know how we move them from place to place? We drive them. We have dogs or people or something behind them driving them from one place to another. That's not how it happens in the East. In the East, because of the relationship that's developed in particular between the shepherd and the sheep, we don't drive sheep. They actually lead them. They go out in front of them, and the sheep hear his voice as he leads, and they follow him. What Jesus is actually saying when he says this, I am the good shepherd, they, my sheep know my name, I lead them out as this, he is always, always with you. He is right there with you. He doesn't simply give you a, a map with directions, with an X that marks the spot of the healthiest pasture and say, get there the best you can. X marks the abundant life that I came and I promised. Here, here's a map. Figure out the best way there. No, the shepherd is always with the sheep. And not just with them by their side, but he's always right out in front of them. And you know what that means? Do you know what that means very practically? It means that as a sheep, you will never go anywhere the shepherd hasn't already been first. If he's going to lead his sheep somewhere, he's out in front of his sheep, which means he sees all the dangers before the sheep ever get there. He's preparing the way for the sheep to get to the place he's trying to get them. He recognizes what's going to cause them harm and what needs to be moved and where the best place for them to be is. It means that everywhere he leads you, he's already been there first. And even when you're there, he's right there with you. 
This is what it means for him to be your shepherd. Even when you find yourself in what the psalmist calls the, the, the valleys of the, the shadows of, of death, you have nothing to fear, he said. Not just because your rod and your staff are there, but they're there because you're there. Nothing to fear because he's there. And not only is he there, he's been there before. He's been there ahead of you. He asks you to go nowhere that he doesn't go with you and hasn't been before you. This is what it means for him to be your shepherd. This is how he loves you. I I don't have the capacity to know what every single person in here is going through. I mean, I have the privilege of, of helping to, to love you and serve you and in a sense as an under-shepherd lead you through different things that you're going through, but I can't know what every single person is going through in here. But here's the thing. Jesus does, and here's what you need to understand if he's your shepherd. He's been there before you. He's not only there with you, he's been there before you. Whatever you're going through, he's actually been there. He understands the ache in your heart. He understands and he knows the anxiety in your mind. He understands and has experienced the worry in your soul, yet he's responded to it without sin, but he knows. Never takes you somewhere that he is not only with you in, but that he hasn't been there before. This is what it means for him to be your good shepherd. But lest you think that life is an endless trek through dark valleys and deep shadows, The good shepherd's aim is to lead his sheep to green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures beside still waters. He guides me in paths of righteousness, restores my soul for his name's sake. He leads and he guides. It's his responsibility to find a place where we can not only be fed and remain nourished, but that we can lie down in peace. And sheep are so high maintenance, there's so much work in that. I mean, for a sheep to lie down in a green pasture and be at peace, it meant the shepherd had to calm him, had to make sure that he understood that he wasn't in danger, and if there was anything preventing him from getting comfortable, a rock or or a spur or anything in the grass, he had to remove it. If there were any flies that were bothering him, he had to get the ointment on the sheep so that he could lay down. It's a high maintenance job to love a sheep. But this is what he does. He leads us to green pastures, and he does what's necessary for us to be able to lie down and rest in them. This is one way that Jesus, as your good shepherd, loves you. But there's another way the shepherd loves his sheep, a big way the shepherd loves his sheep. We'll look at more of them next week, but here's a big one. A good shepherd, and Jesus, as your shepherd, is willing to protect his sheep, even if it costs him his own life. Look at this, verse 11. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. And so I don't know real quick if you've picked up as we've been reading through this that if Jesus is the good shepherd in this whole word picture, that makes you and I the what? Sheep, it's not an overly flattering picture. We haven't really pointed it out along the way, but sheep are pretty dim-witted and ignorant animals. You know a sheep has to have a shepherd, and we'll, we'll get to what that means in just a second, but it's not a flattering picture. If you let a sheep go, like if you set a sheep free, 
Do you know what will happen to it? Do you know what will happen to a sheep if you set it free? It'll die. You know, sheep, and I looked this up on Google, and I'm sure there are others, but I couldn't find it, you know, with enough searching. But do you know sheep are one of the only animals that if you set them free, they won't go wild? You won't find wild sheep? You laugh, but you know, it's, no wild sheep. They can't, they have no sense of direction. They can't find their way to a particular place. They don't have the capacity to discern for themselves what vegetation will be most beneficial to them and what vegetation will be poison for them if they actually eat it. You know, a sheep, if he finds himself on his back, and that can happen if he gets too much mud, too much mud in his wool and he gets too heavy. When he lays down, he can end up on his back. And do you know what happens if a sheep ends up on his back? He'll die. He can't flip back over. He'll lose the circulation and he'll die upside down like a turtle. Sheep have no way to defend themselves. No fangs, no talons, no real even horns. Nothing to defend themselves. I mean, if, if an 18-wheeler full of sheep, and you see them on the interstate all the time, comes down Laburnum and something happens and it tips over and all the sheep get out, just go outside and have a petting zoo. There's, there's nothing to fear with sheep. In fact, when you can't sleep, what do you tell your kids to do? Count sheep. Nothing intimidating about a sheep. Now make that truck full of lions or bears or something, and we're locking the doors. We're not going out until every single one of those things is accounted for, but not a sheep. Absolutely helpless. Absolutely dim-witted and ignorant. And this is the picture that Jesus is painting of you and I. And he says, I, I know it though. Every single last bit of it. And I love you. And here's one of the ways that I demonstrate just how much I love you. If I don't protect you, you're going to die. When a robber or a thief or a wolf, some other predator came to get the sheep, do you know the sheep have no capacity to convince the shepherd to protect them? You realize that, right? I mean, let's just be real here, honest. The sheep can't convince the shepherd, hey, I need you to protect me. Seriously, get up. If the shepherd is going to protect the sheep, he's going to have to do it by his own volition. He's going to have to willingly put himself in between his sheep and whatever it is that's threatening their life. This is the very thing that Jesus said he has done. Listen to this, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I've received from my Father. If Jesus is your good shepherd, you need to understand that he deliberately and willingly and authoritatively decided to lay his own life down. And don't just think he laid his body on the cross, and though he did. And don't just think that in his physical body he exhausted the wrath of God in your place for your sin, though he did. What John is saying here when he says, I laid down my life, he's not talking about his body there. He's using the word that they would use in the New Testament for soul. He's saying, I poured out my very soul unto death, willingly, deliberately, and authoritatively. I decided when I was going to do it. I decided how it was going to be done. I decided to stop breathing. I decided to deliberately make myself a willing sacrifice in your 
place. Did he do it for his own benefit? No. Jesus didn't need to die. He had no sin. He had no sin to be punished for. He died purely for the benefit of his sheep. You. Me. What a sacrifice. Absolutely undeserved. But he did it for the benefit of his sheep. Helpless, dim-witted, ignorant, timid, skittish, wandering sheep that he knows every single inch of. Every single inch of you. Every last piece of you. Inside and out. Better than you know yourself. And he says, here's how much I love you. I'll lay down my life in your place for your sin. And here's where I want you to catch what I was saying in the beginning. This has to move way beyond a theological understanding. If Jesus is your shepherd, you've got to get this. It means that you are his treasure. This isn't going to fit into a theological category for you. It's going to have to be very real to you. If Jesus is your shepherd, then you are his treasure. He said, look, I'm not like those hirelings. I'm not in this thing for the money. Shepherds, when they had accumulated enough wealth, they would hire somebody to watch over the sheep for them. But what would happen when, when, when predators would come, when threats would come? Those guys would flee. They weren't their sheep. Jesus says, that's not me. I'm the shepherd that owns the sheep. And here's why that's so important. The entire measure of wealth for a shepherd the entire picture of a shepherd's assets, of his pride, of his joy, of his glory. It was his sheep. Shepherds don't raise sheep for the slaughter. That's not why they raise them. The value of a sheep is intrinsic to itself. The wool, the milk, all the things the sheep provides, those were the wealth of the shepherd. Here's what Jesus is saying. Do you catch this? This is how much I love you. This is what you mean to me. I'll lay down my life. You're my joy. You're my joy. I'm the good shepherd, and I know you. Down to the darkest and deepest parts of your soul, yet I love you. I call you my own. I I call you my own. I watch over you. I examine you. I lead you. You're never alone. In fact, I love you so much, I laid my life down for you. I took upon myself what wasn't even mine to take so that you you could be saved. So you could be saved. I own everything. I created everything with my word. In fact, my word still sustains everything in existence, but here's how much I love you. I'll lay down my life for you. If he is your shepherd, you've got to understand. That means you're his treasure. Philip Keller that shepherd we've been talking about. This is what he said about his work as a shepherd. He said, there was a profound and deeply moving sense in which all of my life, all of my strength, all of my energy, all of my vitality was poured into my flock. It simply had to be so if they were going to enjoy an optimum life under my management. The thief comes, Jesus said, to steal, to kill, 
and destroy. I'm the good shepherd. I came that you might have life. All of my energy, all of my strength, all of my vitality, my entire life, my soul was poured out that you might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is not about having what the world has to offer. You've got to catch this. Abundant life is not about having what the world can offer. Abundant life is about having what only God himself can offer. It's not about having stuff. Right? De Tocqueville said, those are incomplete joys. Incomplete joys. They can't satisfy the heart. It's about having what only God can offer. It's about having God himself. It's abundant life because you have the good shepherd. You have him, and he has you. And so how do you get there? How does that actually happen? Jesus says it right here, verse 7. Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Well, I thought he was the shepherd. How can he be the shepherd and the door? Was he confused? There was a time in which a shepherd would lead his sheep out into pasture. And the pasture that he would lead them to and guide them to for their health, for their benefit, might be too far away to get back to their town, to their village, that sheepfold by the nighttime. So what he would do out there in that pasture is he would find whatever he could find around and he would build a makeshift sheepfold. Whatever he could find, he'd build it. But Given the resources he had and the time he had to do it, there's no way he could make a door. So you know what he would do? He would lead his sheep into that sheepfold, just like he would back in town, examining every single one of them, every single inch of them, calling them by name, giving them his voice, making sure that they were assured, making sure they felt safe, making sure they weren't skittish and afraid as he led them in there. And then as the last one was in that sheepfold, he would lay down in that space where a door would have been. And so the only way in that sheepfold was through the body of that shepherd. No other way in. No other way into that place of security, that place of peace. No other way but through that shepherd. Jesus says, you want an abundant life? The only way in is through me. I'm, I'm the door. There's no religious system that you can learn about. There's no organization you can join. No set of rules that you can actually obey. There's only one way. It's through me. That's it. That means if you and I are going to have abundant life, the only way in is through Jesus, the good shepherd, which means you and I have to own our sheepishness. We have to own the fact we're sheep. We have to own the fact that we aren't shepherds. We are sheep. We have to own the fact that we are timid, fearful, inefficient, ineffective, not capable of taking care of ourselves, and we desperately need a shepherd. And each of us knows it deep down in our heart. Each of us knows we desperately need a shepherd. The question is, is Jesus the one? We know we need a shepherd. You've got to own the fact that you need a shepherd. You've got to own the fact that you're a sheep. But here's the thing. If he's going to be your shepherd... It means he's got to be your everything. I mean, that's what a shepherd was to a sheep. He was his everything. He couldn't even get off his back. He couldn't even figure out what food to eat that wouldn't kill him. 
He couldn't even figure out how to get from A to B. No sense of direction. Another animal comes by, he couldn't even protect himself. A shepherd was everything to the sheep. And if he is going to be your shepherd, he is going to have to be everything to you. He's going to have to be everything. And if he is your shepherd and you recognize your need for one, and if he is your everything, here's what it means. It means you listen to his voice and you just obey him. You obey him in everything. You don't look at him like a consultant. He's a shepherd. And you need him for everything. If you're like me, there's parts of you that you say, you know what, I could use a little shepherd help over here, but I've got this area over here taken care of pretty well, thank you. Sheep can't do that with a shepherd. They need them for everything. If we're going to have this abundant life, if we're going to have it, it means we've got to know the fact we're sheep. We've got to own it. And he's got to be our shepherd. And if he's our shepherd, it means he's got to be our everything. He's got to be everything to us. The Lord, the Messiah, the King, the Christ, the Lord is my shepherd. My everything. Every moment of every day. Can you say that? That's the declaration of an abundant life. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I just ask that there's anyone in here who has never heard your voice, who's never heard your voice and recognized it, and it's never brought peace. It's never brought security. It's never, never brought joy. I pray that you would do what only you could do this morning, and you would speak, and you would speak clearly, and we would hear your voice, and we would see you, hear you, trust you, and love you as our good shepherd. We would know you as our good shepherd. We'd move past knowing you as the good shepherd. But we would know you as my good shepherd. I ask this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake and our joy. Amen.